so yeah, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about the end and, and the beginning of the financial system. So you know, when I reached out, I guess a quick intro to myself first. So my name is Mao Mao. Um, so I'm a partner at uh, crypto uh, high frequency trading firm Eigen Capital. Um, and so I just want to talk for a quick second about how I got into this space because um, I think it's pretty relevant to what's going on today. So um, I went to college at NYU. And uh, I was in school when Occupy Wall Street happened. So I was studying uh, graphic design. And when I, um, and Occupy Wall Street happened, I went down to Zuccotti Park. And I, I, I learned that I didn't know anything about, uh, about finance. And that it had this huge impact on the world and had been doing it for decades. I didn't know anything about it. And so I made the decision then to just ditch design and go into finance instead. And so I was very lucky. I found a job at a management consulting firm, which was hiring graphic designers. And I worked at, I, mean, I worked at, um, as a management consultant um, doing projects for Morgan Stanley for about a year and a half. And I left and started my own startups, which were all FinTech based. And so I've been doing startups as I guess early 2016. But the whole goal was trying to, to kind of get to the heart of what the financial system does and what impact does it have and what can we do about it. And obviously, you know, or maybe not obviously, that eventually led me to crypto, which I think is going to be the core of the, the financial system, you know, going forward. And so that's kind of, you know, how I got into this space and kind of what's been driving my life since 2011. Um, and I think it's especially relevant because I think we're at this, this cusp. Um, you know, we might as well start. I think we're at the cusp where the old economy is really starting to slow down. Um, I think we're at the top of the roller coaster. And so if you look at some of these key markets, right, the S&P, the Dow Jones, um, you know, the Chinese real estate uh, index, you know, the A shares um, is up since, you know, for the last few months, but we will talk about that in a second. Most of these markets have slowed down significantly. And you see really 2018 is, it seems to be the, the turning point. I can tell you anecdotally in China, pretty much everyone I've talked to last year didn't make any money. So it wasn't as bad as 2018 where everything was just going to shit, but it wasn't a good year for anyone. And so it just seems like we're at the, you know, we're 10 years, we're, we're pretty 10 years overdue for a recession if we, talk, if we look at these cycles. And so it just seems that, you know, it just seems that things have slowed down um, statistically and, and I guess uh, qualitatively. So since 1981, um, and especially since 2008, growth has been primarily driven by debt. Um, or, well, I guess that's my opinion. And so if we look at this, this chart over here, which is the US, we can see that debt really started ticking up around 1981. It was a slight reduction in debt during the Clinton administration. And then you see this other huge uptick during 2008, uh, which continued through the Obama administration. And really, it's been, you know, really my opinion has been, it's been debt that's been fueling all the growth since, uh, since 1981. We've essentially been, if you look at China, uh, you see kind of a similar pattern where there's a growth in debt since 1981. And then as China, the country liberalized, you increasingly see this spike in debt. And I think the really interesting thing is you see this spike in household debt, much of which was used to finance real estate purchases. And so, um, 
the point I'm, trying, I'm making here is I, my view is that debt has been the, tri the primary driver of growth as, as opposed to uh, growing productivity since uh, 1981. And so we've basically been putting the entire world's economy on a credit card. And at some point we have to, we have to pay for it. So central banks, which have been a pretty significant driver behind this trend, um, another worrying thing is that they're losing influence over the economy, which is bad because they're the ones that kind of got us in this mess in the whole place. And so, especially again, since 2008, uh, interest rates have flatlined. So, you know, interest rates are used by central banks to kind of stimulate spending activity. They basically make getting cash cheaper by reducing the uh, interest rate for loans from the central bank, which trickles down to commercial banks and potentially to, uh, to savers at the end. Um, however, if these interest rates are zero, or uh, then there's not really much they can do. Now, there have been experiments for negative interest rates. Um, however, uh, Sweden, which was the first to start that experiment, tried to go to negative 1%, and it went really badly, and they kind of pulled back. And so I guess what we can say is it doesn't look like that's a very promising experiment. And just that just seems perverse, honestly. Just why should you get taxed to save money? That just seems like, you know, it seems negative. It seems contrary to the market, at the very least. We also see the world drowning in liquidity. Um, so quantitative easing is, is measures that central banks take to essentially um, increase the balance sheet of whatever they want to increase, um, commonly through buying bonds. Um, and so, again, you see this big uptick, um, in this case, John 6, John 7. And so if, if you remember the narrative around then, quantitative easing was pitched as a way to kind of get past the hump of this unfortunate recession. Um, but it really hasn't been the case. You see quantitative easing, easing increasing. You see it's slightly tapering the last few years, but not really. It's still significantly past kind of historical levels if you look at it from a, you know, a, a multiple decades in terms of a time span. And then the other thing is you see the European Central Bank, you see the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, you see everyone else stepping up their, their QE programs. And so you can't just create assets out of thin air, right? For every asset, you have to have a liability. So quantitative easing is basically just driving up debt through, through central banks. And so here is kind of the, the chart I want to just point out. So the S&P is up for, uh, for this year, for the last few months. Um, I think it's, what, maybe close to record high. Um, but it's also closely linked to more quantitative easing. And uh, the other thing, which I don't have a chart to back up, but much of the stock market's growth has been driven by a pretty small subset of companies. Um, and so it's very, you know, it's, it's, I think it's debatable how much of this is due to, for example, positive market sentiment towards the future of the economy, towards, uh, you know, stronger earnings from each of these companies, which they can use to trigger buybacks, or just from, again, you know, central banks just throwing cheap liquidity at, at the market. So currency depreciation um, has been a continuing trend. And so the dollar compared to the consumer price index, which is a basket of commodities like, you know, like bread, like rice, like oil, uh, you know, cooking oil, 
So that the dollar has decreased against CPI by about 20% since 2008. And so that's only 12 years ago. And so if you had $100 in the bank in 2008, it's basically worth $80 now, uh, which is a pretty, well, it sucks, right? Um, same deal for RMB. You know, I, I bring up USD and the RMB because these are you know, the biggest and the second biggest economies in the world. And the RMB has been on a similar trend. In fact, I think today it might be close to under $7 per one RMB. Um, and certainly with what's happening in China's market, you know, I think it's unlikely that it's going to go up anytime soon. So basically, we are stuck, or I think, I think we're stuck somewhere in the middle of this debt cycle. So this chart is from Ray Dalio's book, uh, Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises, which is a great book, and it's free online. Um, and so, you know, we're probably somewhere around here. We're probably somewhere around the top, if not somewhere past the top and nearing a depression. You know, this, this chart is based on, it's a composite of, I think, over 30 or over 70 uh, debt cycles historically. We're probably going to ha have to follow the cycle to the end, whether we want it or not. And, um, you know, if all things go well, then we'll have a recession. It's going to suck. And then we'll kind of get rid of some of these toxic assets and you know, just kind of gradually return the economy back to normal. And hopefully we can come back on the other end and, uh, and potentially start a new debt cycle or, if we, or even better, don't start a new debt cycle, do something else. However, it's basically unclear how bad the recession is going to be. And I think that's the big thing on everyone's mind because that's probably the thing that we're going to experience next. And so... Uh, one of the reasons why I think this depression is going to suck for a lot of people is because income inequality has, has really increased for the last 30 years. Well, I guess 40 years now, especially for the top 0.1%. So when, uh, when Occupy Wall Street happened, I don't know if you recall this, but the big rallying call was that we are the 99%. Uh, one of the central themes of Occupy Wall Street was that the top 1% were accumulating a larger and larger percentage of the pie. Um, and if you look at kind of these charts over here, you can see that um, wage growth has been quite uneven. Basically, the closer you get to, to being the richest person in the world, the more your wage growth has, has soared. And so it's, it's almost to a point where being in the top 1%, it doesn't even make you, you know, that much of a winner in this, in this economy. It's almost like you have to if you're in the top 0.01%, you're almost off the chart. It just shows how income inequality has been prevalent at every, at every level of the economy. Practically, that means for most people that there's not a lot of savings, that there's less uh, income in the future to go around, that you know, in, in the case of a depression, a larger piece of the, uh, the population will be less prepared for a depression and or sensitive to one, um, and yeah, it's, it's gonna suck. Oh yeah, I like some of my slides are messed up. But yeah, the impact of climate change is finally showing up. And so you can see, you know, these, these are two images. The one on the left is Alaska, where uh, a large amount of salmon that were swimming upstream uh, um, 
overheated, and so it was it was hot, hotter than it was it was hotter weather than usual, and um, and yeah, they they overheated. They were trying to swim upstream, and the water was too hot, and so there's a bunch of dead salmon there. And the the image on the on the right is is Australia, where I'm sure you've been aware of the 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 fires that have basically burned. I think like eighty percent of the country have basically uncontrollable have killed. I think over 500 million animals and destroyed these habitats. And um, so that happened. And that's probably likely to increase further as we, as we experience things such as, as, as feedback loops. Yeah, it's not going to be great. So, you know, we started this by saying that we're at the top of the roller coaster. So at this point, uh, this great thing called the coronavirus showed up. And so, you know, in my view, the media kind of response to coronavirus has been uh, kind of muted. Um, so kind of quick anecdotal note about what's happening in China. So at this point, basically every major city is under lockdown. Uh, Beijing entered lockdown yesterday, Shanghai, I think, maybe the day before. Now, there are different stages of lockdown. So Wuhan is completely locked down. No one can get out. People can still get in. Uh, so in Beijing and Shanghai, basically every two days, one person can leave their house, her household. So rail, railway travel has greatly increased, cross-province travel has greatly, greatly decreased, Most uh, many highways have been closed, uh, all the logistics companies have been unable to function. I'd say probably most companies, except ones like ours, which are fortunate enough to be able to work, work remotely, are unable to return to work and may not be able to return to work until at least the end of February. And so if you consider that, basically you know, what that means is that China, which manufactures a huge amount of the world's uh, you know, raw materials or finished products or whatever, and also has a population of 1.4 billion, um, basically China cannot work for a month. And so that's probably going to cause significant disruption, to put it lightly, to global supply chains, to trade, and it's going to exact a huge cost on the people of China. And it's doing that at a time when the economy is highly fragile and potentially propped up by large amounts of quantitative easing. And so I just want to talk about the coronavirus for a second, uh, specifically, because I think, you know, there have been potential cases in New York. Uh, certainly there may have been many infected people inside the United States that we don't know about because at best diagnostic tests are, um, have a 50% false negative rate. And so some, some facts about the coronavirus. So it's highly infectious. At this point, it looks like the r naught, which shows that how many people each infected person can infect is anywhere from 2.5 to four, which is quite high. So infectious people can be contagious without symptoms, symptoms including dry cough, fever, or difficulty of breath. And so people can, be, can have symptoms for up to 24 days and can be contagious for some period of this time, which is crazy, right? So someone could just show up, have no cough, no fever, no, have nothing, and just infect someone else with coronavirus. Um, the virus can survive for up to nine days on flat surfaces if not disinfected. And there, you know, just a few days ago, 
um, the Chinese government released the newest version of uh, the fact, their facts about the coronavirus, where they had, where they stated it's capable of aerosol transmission. So aerosol transmission means that the, the virus can be transmitted airborne at, uh, at a range of up to 500 meters. So the coronavirus is potentially deadly. So for healthy people, the mortality rate is, is one to 3%. It looks like it's gonna be one to 3%, which is kind of okay. Uh, I mean, it's not okay, it's, it's still really high, right? The flu, the mortality rate for the flu is 0.1%, but it's, it's kind of okay. But for those over 60 or for those over, who have compromised immune systems, it can be deadly. And so um, a recent article in The Lancet, which reviewed 99 cases of the coronavirus, found that for those over 60, 30% uh, developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, which basically means you can't breathe. And so you need either to have, you know, you need to be sucking oxygen or you need to have a tube, you know, stuffed in your throat or something. And uh, so ARDS has a mortality rate of 50%. And so for those over 60 or for those with compromised immune systems, the mortality rate could be up to 15%. If ARDS happens to you, there's, your quality of life is going to be greatly impaired for, well, for the rest of your life. The other really, really bad thing about the coronavirus is that it seems to trigger what's called a cytokine storm, which basically means that the virus attacks your immune system. And so at this point, I think it's unclear whether it's a permanent, whether it's permanent damage to the immune system or temporary. Um, but either way, it sucks, right? And it's just even worse for those with, with poor immune systems. And so, so please, you know, wash your hands frequently. Um, if you can, bring some hand sanitizer or alcohol wipes with you. Um, certainly wash your hands before eating anything. Don't touch your eyes. Um, disinfect services that you're around, especially around your home, and consider wearing a face mask and, uh, and recon reconsider public gatherings like the one we're currently in. Um, you know, being in. Being in China, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. You know, things are gonna get a, a lot worse before they get better. So I think, uh, so to summarize, we're at a point where there's no more water but the fire next time. Um, we're past the point, I think we're past the point of self-correction. Even if we were close to the point of self-correction, even if that chance existed, the coronavirus just, just, just completely obliterated that possibility. And we are close to the end of the system as we know it. We're at the top of the roller coaster uh, and we're about to go down. So I heard this thing on Twitter um, and I'm, I'm sensitive that this, this meetup is New York, uh, but I do think it's, it's a fair comparison where they said the coronavirus is almost like 911, but for the entire world. And so it's not even like the virus is gonna be the, uh, the, the, the thing that really causes the most damage um, it does look like the mortality rate is limited. Um, so, you know, callous though it may sound, we might end up with only, you know, 500,000 or more dead by the end of this. However, the impact on trade, um, certainly the disruption to supply chains for the next month or two, um, the impact on travel, the impact on how we have to interact with each other, because it seems like this virus is going to be around for a very long, for at least one or two years. These shocks to the system at a time that's most fragile, 
it seems like this is going to be the turning, or I think it's possible that this could be the turning point for, uh, well, for a while. So let's talk a second about the, the rising digital economy. So quick disclaimer, um, you know, th again, this is my fault. We've been kind of running from this virus for the last two weeks, and so I haven't been able to get these slides up to where I think they should be. And so I'm just going to have to just have blank slides up and just talk about this for a while. It sounds like things are bad, but, you know, there's nothing, it is what it is, right? We just have to do what we can do about it. And fortunately, if you're here, you're ahead of the curve. Just for the virus, it seems like media reports are, in my view, kind of underreporting the potential impact. It's not like every day you go around and just look at quantitative easings or you just try to measure the depreciation of the USD against CPI. And so I think you know, if you're here, then at least we can start looking forward uh, in an informed way and see what we can do about it. Yeah, so this is my first slide that's got nothing on it. So in my view, um, and this is obviously conjecture, uh, and I think it'd be great if we could to just have a discussion after this and just, I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts. In my view, the, in the future, the only real scarce resources are gonna be uh, food, trust, your health, and, and Bitcoin. And so food, so you know, China's another great example. Obviously, it's very close to my heart. So China, uh, I, I think, you know, kind of a prevalent image of China is the, the farmer with the little like rice hat on these rice patties, like Jet Li in that fun movie. But uh, China is actually a net importer of food. And China, you know, is actually experiencing a, uh, a pig flu where 50% of all China's pigs had to be culled. Um, so that's a lot of pigs. And it's currently experiencing an avian flu where millions of chickens are being thrown into pits and buried. And because logistics in the country are all fucked up, so there's tons of produce that's been essentially rotting away because it can't be transmitted, because it can't be transported because the highways are closed. And uh, with, you know, with all that being said, I think the other major impact globally, uh, besides increased virus, besides all this, besides more fragile kind of supply lines, is climate change. You know, we, we looked at dead salmon in Alaska uh, a second ago. Another statistic that I wish I had a chart for, a source for, is that uh, last year in 2019, rice harvests in Japan were down by 20%. And so these are because of unseasonably warm weather. So rice is a very sensitive crop. It feeds a huge amount of people. Um, but it's not like wheat or, or these other crops aren't sensitive. And so if the, temp if the temperature goes up globally by 1% or 2%, then it's just going to have huge impact on big parts of the world and their ability to be sustainable. Now, you know, there is the potential to kind of move to colder climates like, uh, like Scandinavia, like Russia, like Canada, and keep farming there. But the other impact of climate change is not just increased temperatures, but also greater unpredictability and more extreme weather. If you look at Canada, which you would think would be a net winner in all this in terms of agriculture, because uh, parts of Canada, which were not arable because it's just too cold, um, will now be candidates for farming or um, will be able, you'll be able to farm there for longer parts of the year. But if you look at Canada, uh, um, 
2019 was actually a, uh, quite a difficult with, with weather being more unpredictable. There was entire harvests or, or droughts. Yeah, food's going to be scarce. We should stock up or something. So it's currently unclear uh, what the long-term effects think the coronavirus will be, but it may have a permanent effect on your immune system. I think, and this is again drawing from the experience back in China where you have over a billion people who are basically ha have been staying at home for the last two weeks because it's too dangerous to go outside. I think it's become, I think Greta Thunberg put it best during her speech when she said that it's, it's, it's not productive anymore to believe in fairy tales of endless economic growth. And I think, especially in New York, I think all of us, certainly when I was living there, I think there's this kind of, this culture to endlessly grind your way to the top. New York is certainly, I think, a very doggy dog kind of place. And I think that kind of, uh, you know, culture only is relevant when growth is the end all and be all. And certainly I think that's been true of the economic system globally for the last 50, 100, 200 years or longer, um, where growth is kind of the, the south that heals everything. And so people are just being thrown into this meat grinder to maintain growth. And I don't think that growth is sustainable anymore. I think, well, I think this year was when we, when we hit the, the tipping point been a very eventful year and so yeah your health is important you know it's uh sometimes it's not worth grinding those few extra hours and finally bitcoin so you know i think most people in this room are familiar with bitcoin but bitcoin as you know has a fixed supply central governments are printing tons of money through qe and flooding the economy and so you know if the supply of bitcoin goes up by 1.5 percent a year which will be the amount after the happening in april and most countries are printing maybe three, four, five percent of uh, of the total supply of their currency every year to do QE. Then yeah, Bitcoin's gonna outperform them by last at least two X, even if it doesn't do anything. So these are the scarce resources that that might be uh, around in the future. So let's talk about Bitcoin for a second. Let's talk about something more lighthearted. So, you know, cryptocurrency as a portfolio component, uh, just, just looking at statistically, just quantitatively, it, it increases your risk adjusted returns. Uh, crypto markets have historically had very correlation to existing markets. They're just not correlated at all. So that doesn't really make them recession proof, but it does mean that if, in my view, if you're a, a responsible portfolio manager, then, then it makes sense to divert, diversify by putting, getting some exposure to Bitcoin. And if you don't like the way the economy is going, then, you know, I don't, no one can guarantee that Bitcoin will perform, outperform the rest of the economy because it's not really correlated at all. But at least it's not correlated at all. And you can just, you know, put your money somewhere else if everything else is going down. Bitcoin is the opposite of currency depreciation. So these are two really great charts. Uh, these are from a Medium page called 100 trillion USD, which is great. I, I highly recommend it. And so Bitcoin is very cyclical. And obviously we're dealing with a very limited data set. It's only been around for 11 years only, but it does seem very cyclical. And so, you know, this chart on the left, what we see here is uh, 
is something called, it's, it's Bitcoin plotted against its stock to flow ratio. So what stock to flow means is, um, so stock means the total supply of some, some thing. And the flow means the total new supply per year. And so basically the, lo the lower the stock to flow rate, uh, sorry, uh, the higher the stock to flow ratio, the higher, lower, higher, uh, the higher, the higher the stock to flow ratio, the, the, the slower this asset increases. And so if you look at, for example, something like copper or, or silver, which has a bunch of industrial applications, um, you know, so there's tons of copper being produced, there's con tons of copper being used, and there, there's tons of copper being recycled. And then you look at something like gold. So there is new gold being minted every year. And so, you know, the reason I bring this up is Bitcoin stock to flow has continuously increased. So the net supply of Bitcoin has increased while the amount of new Bitcoin proportional to total supply has decreased. Obviously, in the beginning, there are more and more Bitcoin. And then we started to experience the, uh, the happenings. And so in this chart, this cluster over here are shortly after uh, the, the block reward decreased in, uh, let's see, this is 20, 2016 and 2012. And so what you see here is, um, so basically this blue point, this blue dot over here is the month just before the block reward, reward halved. And this red dot is the month right after. And so, and then, you know, this, this vertical axis is the price. And so this, this straight line is the kind of like a fair price for Bitcoin. And you see that right after the happening increase, you see this kind of surge where Bitcoin uh, starts lower than the, the fair price, then goes up to, it kind of overshoots the fair price and it kind of comes back on right onto the line. And you see kind of same thing happening over here um, in 2016. And also you see kind of a very, you see that it follows the, the, the chart set by gold and silver where their market value is kind of proportional to the stock to flow ratio. And so uh, after this next happening, um, actually let's look at this chart over here as well. And so this is kind of an expanded version of that chart. This, this line over here is the theoretical fair market price for Bitcoin if we only use the stock to flow ratio. And so you see that it does seem to be following the chart to some degree. Um, it kind of anticipates it and then overshoots it and comes back down. So I think it's, it's a fairly useful model for us to think about these things. And so after the halvening in April, Bitcoin will actually be somewhere around here. And well, you know, God knows if the same uh, cycle is going to repeat itself, but if it does, then... Bitcoin will probably end up at a terminal, at a kind of uh, a, a new uh, historical high of maybe around 100K. And it'll probably fall down to somewhere like uh, 65K. Um, so we'll see, because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen over the next two years. You know, it may be a good time to buy Bitcoin. It's not investment in rice, you know, do your own research, investing as risk. So yeah, this is kind of the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, again, I wish I had a stronger thesis or more evidence based around this. You know, my apologies to Dex for not having, uh, not being able to do a good enough job on this. But I do think we're going to have to experience pretty significant change over the next uh, forever if we don't die as a as a species. So I think again, I think we have to get past this fairy tale of eternal growth. I don't think it's 
well, I certainly don't think it's viable anymore. I don't really think it makes sense. I think, you know, I heard that there was someone from consensus over here. So I think it's possible we might end up in a two-tier economic system where we have ubiquitous aut autonomous services, maybe some of which are centrally based and some of which are decentralized. You know, Uber is a good example. Compound is a good example. And we might have trust-based premium services where they're more flexible, they're more whatever the premium might be, but you got to trust someone. And so it is what it is. Uh, I think we'll probably have a new financial system based around cryptocurrency. And so I just want to give one example here. I know some people in crypto hate Tether. Now that being said, so there's a, there's a, there's a business partner of ours that is a very large crypto company in the Philippines. And so there's a large Chinese diaspora in the Philippines. And there's a lot of people that are kind of earning Philippine pesos and need to send RMB back to China. And so, you know, again, Western Union is kind of the most common thing they use. And you're looking at fees of five to 7%. And so what people have been doing, you know, what our partner over there has been doing, they have an exchange where they just, it, it does pesos to tether at a rate of about 1%. And so people are buying, they're taking their pesos, they're buying tether, they're sending it back to China and they're selling their tether for like a 0.1% spread. And so the whole transaction is done in an hour and the net cost is 1.1%. You know, obviously, you know, there are, there are potential pitfalls to this. And so with, uh, with a fully decentralized financial system, things like money laundering become harder to control. You know, nation states kind of lose some of their key influence. So these are things we're gonna to have to deal with. I think cryptocurrency is just a much better customer experience. You know, it's faster, you as a consumer, you as a user have much more control over your product, which is the, the currency, the asset, whichever it is. It's more private if you take proper precautions. You can, it's, uh, it's a lot more automated, even though we're just at the cusp of that. So yeah, I think that's probably what's gonna happen. And the last thing I wanna say, which I forgot to put on this slide. And so you know, going back to Occupy Wall Street, one of the things that I was obsessed about was not just was one income inequality, but also kind of the changing role of the nation state. So at the time, it seemed that, well, if Wall Street can make so much money, then it just seems like a more efficient way to organize than, you know, government. I think the efficiency of government has always been in question. But at the same time, you know, we need someone to, to maintain roads and maintain police and maintain the military. The other thing is that I think, you know, as the world becomes more and more global and as we become more global as millennials, which probably most of us in this room are, then I think that these, these concepts of organizing around a shared uh, territory or a shared ethnicity or a shared language, I think they start to weaken. You know, if you, if you look at the concept of a nation state, it's only been around for, you know, I think less than 200 years. And it's really based around this idea of a group of disparate people, you know, in this case, the city-states of Italy, which have been at war with each other for hundreds of years, where they were somehow able to kind of unite around this shared idea of this thing called a nation. In this case, it was based around the peninsula of Italy. And I think that concept is still around where people can still organize around this shared idea. And I think you see it on places like Telegram where you have all these groups or Discord 
where you have different servers or meetups like this where people are organizing to talk about this idea. And I think that these groups are held together by trust. And so I think all y'all came here or a lot of y'all come here because you know that Dex it consistently puts on tr tremendous events and it's a great community. And I think that's why some people come. And you know, I think anyone who's done business in crypto will know just how, uh, how much of a premium trust is in a fully trustless financial system. And so I think that, you know, not that I have any evidence whatsoever to back it up, but I think that in the future, nation states will do whatever they want to do. But I think that people are going to start to organize around, I guess, shared ideas, independent of national lines or, or territorial lines. You know, I mean, I'm calling you guys from Japan, so I think that's one example. And these, these, this organization is going to have to be bound by trust because you know, there's only so much a blockchain can do for us. You can't put it, you can't put humans, you can't put like, you can't put a heart on the blockchain. And um, I don't know, we'll figure it out, right? Or we'll all die. So we'll figure it out. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my spiel. So yeah, we'll have to see what everyone thinks.